I'd ask you if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. We will not be reading all 40 chapters of Exodus this morning, though we thought about it. We will be reading Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 to 8, which is one of the highlights of the books of Exodus. And as you have that, I'd ask you to stand with me out of respect for God's Word. While I read for us Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 to 8. The Lord said to Moses, Cut two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be prepared by morning, come up Mount Sinai in the morning and stand before me on the mountaintop. No one may go up with you. In fact, no one should be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and herds are not to graze in front of that mountain. Moses cut two stone tablets like the first ones. He got up early in the morning and taking the two stone tablets in his hand, he climbed Mount Sinai just as the Lord had commanded him. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there and proclaimed his name the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and worshiped. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. What is God like? That's one of the most important questions any of us will ever have to answer. What is God like? We know that many people in our culture like to think of God as a kind God, a kind God who's up there, a kind God who means well, and a kind God who wants us to be nice to one another. Most people's God is a lot like them. He likes what they like. He thinks what they think. And he always approves of their behavior. But of course, there's a problem. If you ask them how they know that their God is truly the way they think of him, they'll have to admit that ultimately they don't know. They'll have to confess that ultimately it's just how they like to think of God. A lot of people in our day are like Sheila Larson. Sheila Larson was a young nurse who was interviewed in 1985 for a book entitled Habits of the Heart. She was asked to describe her faith and she described it this way. She said, I believe in God. I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism, just my own little voice. It's just try to love yourself and be gentle with yourself. You know, I guess take care of each other. I think he would want us to take care of each other. So for Larson, her faith is all about loving herself and being kind to others. And when you ask her about God, well, she understands God to be a nice God who wants us to take care of one another. But that's really as far as it goes. You see, her faith is quite subjective. Uh, she actually named her faith after herself, which is, uh, which is quite honest. Ultimately, her faith is just her opinion, though, isn't it? She said that. It's just my own little voice, my own little voice that teaches me what I should do. And of course, a lot of people have their own little voices, don't they? A lot of people have their own opinions about God and what's he like. But is that all we can say about God, what he's like? Uh, that it's just a matter of opinion? 
Or are we just left to a matter of taking polls to see what the prevailing notions of our culture is as it relates to what God is like? Thankfully, no. You know, because left to ourselves, we could never grasp what God is like. But God, in his kindness, has not left us to ourselves. Instead, he's given us a record. He's given us a word. He's given us his word to teach us what he is like. Our God has revealed his character through creation and through his acts in history. But then he's given us a perfect revelation, a perfect record of who he is in the Bible. 66 books of the Old Testament and the New Testament, which record God's acts and his words for us. And this morning, we are beginning the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. It's an exciting book. It's filled with sand and wind and fire and miracles. Many of you know the stories that are contained in this book. But most especially, this book, Exodus, is a book that reveals the character of God. It reveals his justice. It reveals his mercy. It reveals his wrath. It reveals his sovereignty in a special way. It reveals his holiness. In a word, the book of Exodus reveals the glory of God. In Exodus, the glory of God is on display for us to see. It's a wonderful book. It's a book that talks about how God rescued his Old Testament people, Israel, uh, to demonstrate to them that he is a redeemer. But most especially, it's a book that points us ahead. It points us ahead beyond itself to a greater rescue, the rescue of Christ coming and on the cross dying for us so that we might be rescued from our slavery to sin and so that we might belong to him forever. So our goal this morning is to study the entire book of Exodus in one sermon, and that's 40 chapters in approximately 50 minutes, so we're going to have to move quickly, and a lot will not be said this morning. Much will be left unsaid. Still, I do think it's helpful for us to set kind of the overall uh, context of the book before we dive into the particulars. This morning, we're going to try to give us an outline of the forest so that we can then dive in and take a look at the trees as we work our way through this book, which tells us so much about God. This morning, I want to give us an introduction to Exodus, and then I want us to focus our hearts on five truths that the book of Exodus reveals to us about the character of our God. So first, an introduction. Let's talk about the author of Exodus. Now, the authorship of Exodus is really tied up in a larger discussion of the authorship of the Pentateuch, uh, the first five books of the Bible. So that would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and much ink has been spilled over the issue of who was the author behind the Pentateuch, which includes Exodus. Up until the 19th century, the traditional view was that Moses himself was the author of the Pentateuch and, of course, then of Exodus. Uh, However, liberal Bible scholars towards the end of the 1800s began to teach that the Pentateuch, these five books, were actually something of a composite that were brought together there were, there were multiple authors, right? It was composed by many different authors who used several different ancient sources. And so Exodus, as a final product, and the Pentateuch as a whole, as a final product, was really put into its final form after the people of Israel came back from the exile in Babylon. So you can think of it as something of a patchwork, maybe just cultural memories of a people trying to piece together their own place in the world, maybe even trying to make a place for themselves and, and have some kind of importance that they wouldn't otherwise have. Well, the problem with those theories, and there are several different theories that are similar, is that there is no consensus about who wrote what, how they wrote it, and how it was brought together. And so you have a bunch of theories that talk past one another, but never bring us to any kind of settled conclusion about who actually wrote this book. For our part, we side with the Lord Jesus, who teaches that Moses 
was the author of the Pentateuch, and he was the author of Exodus. At the same time, we recognize that an inspired editor, probably someone like Samuel or Ezra after him, kind of finally put this book into its final and inspired inerrant form. Still, we affirm the essential authorship of Moses. Moses is the source of the material that we're going to be studying together. Now let's look at the date. There's also been a lot of disagreement over when the Exodus occurred. So the Exodus is when the, the people of Israel come out of Egypt and wander in the wilderness and then go into the promised land. When did that happen? Well, well, many would cite archaeological evidence or they would cite a lack of archaeological evidence. And they would say that the Exodus occurred in the 13th century BC, uh, possibly during the reign of Pharaoh Ramses II. Now the problem with that view is the Bible itself says something else. In 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, the biblical author tells us that Solomon began to build his temple 480 years after the people of Israel came out of Egypt. Now, we know that he began to build the temple in around 967 or 966 B.C. And so if you do the math and add 480 years to that, you get an approximate date of 1445 B.C., this also lines up with what we read in Judges chapter 11, verse 26, where Jephthah states that the people of Israel had already been in the land for 300 years by his time, by the time that he was writing. So, I think this is an important point. Given the testimony of Scripture, and given the fact that given enough time, archaeology eventually gets around to proving that Scripture is accurate, it is best to understand that Exodus occurred around 1445 B.C. That would be during the reign of Pharaoh Amenhotep II. Now, the outline of Exodus is it's really fairly straightforward. You just work your way through the book. Chapters 1 and 2, you get the backstory on Moses' life, and you also learn about the suffering of the people of Israel as they are enslaved in Egypt. In Exodus chapters 3 to 15, you see the Lord confront Pharaoh, and show his utter sovereignty over this great world leader as he rescues his people from their slavery. In Exodus chapter 16 to 18, Israel is traveling now from Egypt to Mount Sinai where they're going to meet with the Lord. And along the way, they experience God's provision in the form of manna and also in the form of water from a rock. In Exodus 19 to 24, the Lord enters into a covenant, which is a relational agreement. Uh, he's going to be their king. The Lord enters into a covenant with Israel and gives them his law and shows them how they're to live with one another under his good authority. In Exodus 25 to 31, the Lord gives the people of Israel instructions, really precise instructions, on how they are to worship him through the tabernacle. But when you get to Exodus 32 to 34, Israel then rebels against the Lord with a golden calf and determines that they will worship the Lord their way. And that's a tendency for all of us. The people of Israel are chastened for their sin, but notice they aren't destroyed because our God is gracious and merciful, as we just read. In Exodus 35 to 40, Israel obeys the commands of God to build the tabernacle. And in chapter 40, as the book ends, the glory of God fills the tabernacle. And it's such glory that Moses is not able to enter into the tent. If you stop and think that that really happened in the same way that we're really sitting in this room, it will just blow your mind. Exodus is a book that reveals the glory of God. There's a lot in Exodus. We've already talked about a lot. But as we talk about Exodus this morning, we need to remember that this isn't just ancient history. 
This is history with a purpose. This is theological history. As we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this history was written down specifically to instruct us so that we would not be idolaters, so that we would not give way to immorality as the people of Israel did. This is a, an example for us to teach us how to live. Uh, at the same time, more than that even, we need to understand that Exodus is really our story. Now, this is the story of the people of God. Just as the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, so we also were enslaved to our sins. And that's the metaphor, that's the picture, that's really the reality of what it means to be sinful, is that your will is bound, even though you think you're free. Your will is bound so that you do not love God and do not want to serve him. But the Lord has rescued us from our slavery to sin. And just as Israel went on a journey in the wilderness to get to the promised land, so now we find ourselves on a journey in the wilderness of this world. And where are we heading? Well, we're heading to the promised land. We're heading to heaven. We're heading to a city who has, uh, whose builder is God. The purpose of Exodus, well, it, it is this wonderful journey. It's a journey from Egypt to Sinai. It's a, a journey from slavery to freedom. It's a journey from idolatry to, idolatry to the worship of the true God. Uh, it's an amazing story that's filled with wonderful works of God. So you just think about the way God works through, through revealing himself to Moses in the burning bush. And then there's these 10 plagues. Uh, and then there's the parting of the Red Sea. And there's the provision of manna falling down so that the vast people can eat. And then there's water coming from a rock. And then God manifesting himself there on the mountain as he brings the people of Israel into a covenant relationship with himself. But, but what is the point what is God doing as he does all of these wonderful works? What's the point? Well, at its heart, Exodus is about God's self-disclosure. God's great works of saving Israel in the books of Exodus is really, a, it's, a, it's a part of his larger purpose of revealing to his people for all time what he's like so that we can know him. In Exodus, God reveals his character in amazing ways. He shares his personal name, Yahweh, with Moses there at the burning bush. He displays awesome power in the 10 plagues. Uh, he speaks audibly to the people from Mount Sinai, giving them his law. He allows the Israelite elders to have something of a, of a meal with him, and they're able to see the form of God as they are eating there on the mountain. Most especially, God's glory is revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai as he allows his glory to pass by. And as his glory is passing by, he reveals his character and his glory by, by saying his name, the Lord, and then describing himself as we just read. As we study the book of Exodus over the next year, we're going to be seeing a wonderful display of the character of God. I love what Phil Riken said about this. He said, to read Exodus is to encounter God. The book is about the mercy, justice, holiness, and glory of Almighty God, who rules history by his sovereign power and who saves the people of his covenant. When the biblical writers recall the Exodus, they rarely mention Moses at all. Instead, they speak of the wonders of God. This gives us a hint that the proper way to study Exodus is to pay attention, constant attention, to what the book is showing and telling us about the character of God. Exodus is an exercise in theology, which is simply the study of God. Now, with that background, that's what we want to do this morning. We want to look at the book of Exodus kind of as a whole. We want to work our way through it, and we want to see what does this book reveal to us about the character of God. We're going to learn, as we do so, five truths. If you're taking notes, hopefully you have the sheet that's been given to you. Five truths about God from the book of Exodus. First, we're going to see that God is personal. We'll see that in chapters 1 and chapter 2. 
Second, we're going to see that God is a sovereign redeemer. We're going to see that in chapters 3 to chapter 15. Third, we're going to see that God is a gracious provider. See that from chapter 16 to chapter 18. Fourth, we're going to see that God is holy. So we look in particular at chapters 19 to chapters 24. And fifth, we're going to see that God is glorious. And we'll see that when we look at chapters 25 to chapters 40. Let's look at that first point together then. God is personal. Now, as we said at the beginning of the sermon, the God of Shelaism is not actually personal. Sheila Larson had a, a concept of God, but it was a vague concept. It was a God who was kind of out there, who generally wanted us to take care of, once another, of one another. And we know that many people in our day, they have a very similar conception of God. They believe in a God. They would say that they are spiritual, though they're not religious. And if you ask them to describe their God, they would describe a God, but he's a God who's somewhat hazy. He's a God who's kind of out there. He's a God who's somewhat distant. This God is, for most people, well-intentioned, but he's not terribly involved, at least when we don't want him to be involved. And certainly, he's not personal. Well, friends, the God of the Bible is nothing like that. The God of the Bible is personal. And you see that when you look at chapters 1 and chapters 2. You see just how involved God is in the lives of his people. Now, in chapters 1 and chapters 2, we're introduced to the narrative of the life of Moses. Uh, the book of Exodus, in many ways, really is kind of a, a story of Moses' life. It's all woven together. But you, you meet this man named Moses, and, and you learn about his ancestry. And you learn about the dramatic rescue that he experiences by Pharaoh's daughter as he's an infant. And then you learn about his first failed attempt to lead the people of Israel, where he winds up being a murderer. And then you see him wander for 40 years in the wilderness in what seems to be just kind of a wasted life, just out in the middle of nowhere. But all the while, God is not distant from Moses. God is working out his sovereign purposes in Moses' life because God is preparing him for the work that God would call him to do. And when the time is right, what does God do? God shows up. How does he show up? He shows up in a, a burning bush, but the bush is not consumed. And then God speaks to Moses from the bush and tells him his covenant name, Yahweh, which means I am who I am. Yeah, he's the God who has self-existence. He's the God who is the fountain of life, the fountain of existence for all others. This is who he is. And this God commissions Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. God was, was personally involved in Moses' life, and you see that. But you also see the, the personalness of God, if you will, and the way that he treats the people of Israel. Now, as you read through the first two chapters, Israel is enslaved in Egypt, and they're suffering but you know what? They weren't alone because God knew. God was aware of their suffering. Listen to what Exodus chapter 2 verses 23 to 25 says. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor and they cried out. And their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the Israelites and God knew. I love that word, knew there. It speaks of a personal relationship. It speaks of intimacy. It speaks of, of a deep concern. And ultimately, it's a concern that leads God to act in behalf of his people so that the care God had for the people led him to rescue them. Commenting on God's care for Israel, Matthew Henry said this, he said, God's eyes which run to and fro through the earth are now fixed upon Israel to show himself strong. 
to show himself a God in their behalf. Now, let me make two observations before we move on. First, our God is personally involved in our lives. You see that in the way that he's involved in the life of Moses. You see that in his care, his particular care for his people, Israel. And the reality is that God is personally involved in our lives as well. And that is significant. He knows. Our God is not far from us. He's not distant. He's not aloof. He's not disengaged. He loves us. He knows the details of our lives. He knows our strengths. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our ambitions. He knows our fears. He knows our longings, our success, our failures. Brothers and sisters, listen, even the hairs on our head are numbered. We're supposed to take comfort from that. We're supposed to take comfort from the intimacy of God's concern and knowledge for us. And even better, that leads us to this observation. God cares about our suffering. We see that so clearly in the way that he cares about the suffering of the people of Egypt. It's not that God is aloof up there, that he's kind of senile and distant and well-intentioned, but not involved. No, God is involved. He knew that they were suffering. He cared about them, and he cared about them enough to step into the situation and provide for them deliverance. And brother and sister, if you are this morning experienced a particular season of suffering, you should take comfort from the fact that God not only knows about your suffering, but he cares about your suffering. And just as at the right time he arose from his throne to rescue his people out of slavery in Egypt, the time will come when he will arise and he will rescue you from the particular suffering that you're facing right now. He is able, he cares, and he will do so. It's amazing. None of us cares about the suffering of the ant which scurries beneath our feet. But even though we are so little, God cares about us. And he's committed to helping us. He's a glorious God. In Exodus 1 and 2, we see that our God is personal. A second truth, our God is a sovereign redeemer. Exodus chapter 11 verses 9 to 10. And I'm going to be just kind of as I go through the sermon, reading different portions of scripture, which speaks to each one of these issues. But Exodus 11 verses 9 to 10 says this, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his land. And then Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 to 3. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. They said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. In Exodus chapters 3 to 15, these chapters really kind of recount for us a battle between two rival gods. Uh, there's a pretend God, and then there's the true God. So Pharaoh came from a long line of pretend gods. Uh, they built great structures, great pyramids to their own glory. They considered themselves to be deity, and they were said to be a deity after their death. And Pharaoh shared that kind of pretension. Beyond that, it's very clear as you read through Exodus that Pharaoh exercised a, a godlike authority over his subjects so that those he would keep alive, they lived. And those he would put to death, well, they died. And his plan to drown the male Hebrew infants shows that Pharaoh was a god who was not above genocide. 
And when God, the true God, comes and challenges Pharaoh and commands him to let his people Israel go, Pharaoh's arrogance shines through. He responded this way, who is the Lord that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know the Lord. And besides, I will not let Israel go. But on the other side of the contest, you have Yahweh. And Yahweh is the true God. And Yahweh is utterly sovereign. And his sovereignty is put on display in this contest between him and Pharaoh. And actually, Yahweh is the one who, who actually brings about this conflict so that he can demonstrate his sovereignty for all of us to see that he alone is the true God. And even before the battle begins, Yahweh let us know, lets us know what the outcome will be. Listen to Exodus chapter 3, verses 19 to 22. The Lord says, However, I know that the king of Egypt will not allow you to go, even under force from a strong hand. But when I stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles that I will perform in it, after that, he will let you go. And I will give these people such favor with the Egyptians that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. Each woman will ask her neighbor and any woman staying in her house for silver and gold jewelry and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. So you will plunder the Egyptians. And of course, that's exactly what happens. Because from chapter 6 to chapters 12, what happens? The Lord rains down plague after plague after plague upon Egypt. Plagues of blood, of frogs, of gnats, of flies, of the death of livestock, of boils, of hail, of locusts, of painful darkness, and ultimately, most painful of all for Pharaoh, the death of the firstborn of all of the Egyptians. And when the contest is over... Pharaoh is broken, and he begs, he begs Moses to take the people of Israel out of Egypt. Now, later, he changes his mind. He comes to his own senses in his thinking, and he pursues the Israelites to enslave them again. But then the Lord shows his sovereignty once again as the entire army of Pharaoh is drowned beneath the waters of the Red Sea. And what about the Israelites? Well, they just watch in safety from the farther shore. Why? Because the sovereign God had fought for them and the sovereign God had given them victory. And that's really the other aspect of this contest between Pharaoh and Yahweh that we need to understand. There was a redemptive purpose here. Our God is a sovereign redeemer. He was bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt to demonstrate his glory and to do good to them just as he promised he would. Psalm 106 verses 9 to 10 speaks of it this way. God rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. He led them through the depths as through a desert. He saved them from the power of the adversary. He redeemed them from the power of the enemy. Now there is so much we could say about those chapters and I trust by God's grace as we work our way through, we will say much more about this. But let me make just one observation before we move on. If the Lord our God is the sovereign redeemer, well then we have no reason for fear. Isn't life, doesn't life often feel like one continual struggle with fear and anxiety? We're afraid that we won't have enough. We're afraid of failure. We're afraid of what other people think about us. Sometimes we feel kind of the, the dark spiritual forces that are aligned against us, the same satanic forces that motivated Pharaoh to enslave the people of Israel, and we're shaken by that, and we feel a fear there. But when you look at the utter sovereignty of God in his defeat of Pharaoh, we are reminded that our God is sovereign, that he is utterly in control. 
And we're reminded of the fact that he's a redeemer, which means that he has good purposes for his people, which means we never have to give way to fear and anxiety. Our God only permits things into our lives if he will ultimately turn those things for our good. And that's really, really challenging at times, particularly when we're in the midst of the suffering. And yet that's how great our God is. And as you read through the Bible over and over, he takes the worst of circumstances and he turns them for the good of his people so that they even see it and they praise him. Even when in the midst of the storm, they don't know why he's doing what he's doing. Beyond that, because our God is a sovereign redeemer, nothing can separate us from him. Romans chapter 8, for I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So by God's grace, let's be a people who reject fear. I'm not saying we're not going to feel fear. I feel fear. You do as well. I'm saying when we are tempted to fear and anxiety and worry, we have the resources we need not to lay down before that fear, but instead to stand up and lift the shield of faith and say, my God is a sovereign redeemer. He will help me in the midst of this. I have no reason to fear. Let me cast my cares on him. More briefly, a third truth. God is a gracious provider. God is a gracious provider. Chapters 16 to 18. The the book of Exodus, it doesn't whitewash any of the details. One of the interesting comments one of the commentators make is that, that, you know, there are are people groups that will kind of come up with their own origin story. And normally it's a glorious story and they have a deity and the deity forms them and then they do glorious things. Well, Well, the people of Israel didn't do that because no people group would write a story that puts them in such negative light the whole time. Why do we have an honest account? We have an honest account because we have a holy God who only speaks the truth. And what he shows us is that in chapter 15, the people of Israel are elated and they are praising God and they're singing on the shores of the Red Sea and God is triumphing in their minds and then just one chapter later, they get hungry and they start to bitterly complain against God. And isn't it good that the people of God no longer complain? Still, (laughs) despite the sin of the people, God shows that he is a gracious provider, doesn't he? Doesn't he cause manna to rain down from heaven? Listen to how that's described in chapter 16. In the morning, there was a layer of dew all around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, there were fine flakes on the desert surface, as fine as frost on the ground. And when the Israelites saw it, they asked one another, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. And of course, manna is that. It means, what is it? That's where the name comes from. In Exodus 17, the Lord provides water from the rock of Horeb for his thirsty people. What are they doing? Well, they're complaining once again. Uh, They're accusing Moses of bringing them into the wilderness in order to kill them. And why has God brought us here to kill them? And then what does God do? He responds with gracious provision once again for his people. Uh, Chapter 17, verse 6. I'm going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. Isn't it true that the Lord who just destroyed the Egyptians could have very easily judged his people in the wilderness and left them just to starve and die of thirst in the wilderness for their sin? He could have, but our God is a gracious provider and he provided for all of his people's needs. And that is still true of our God today. And so that's a source of encouragement. 
Uh, I know that many of us have been tempted towards fear as we look ahead. Uh, even as you look at the geopolitical world and you think of what's happening with kind of a, a monstrous U.S. debt, rapid inflation, a weakening influence of the U.S. dollar around the globe, none of that bodes well for the future of the economy of our nation. And perhaps some of us have found ourselves a little fearful as we look ahead thinking about, well, are we going to have enough? Well, we see in chapter 16 to 18 that our God is a gracious provider so that even if the very worst were to happen, our God would supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. The Lord has not promised that we will always have all of the good things we enjoy now. The Lord has promised that we will always have enough. He has promised that he will always meet all of our needs, and he knows what those needs are. He has promised that he will bring us safely home so that no matter what comes in terms of the economy, uh, in terms of our health, in terms of our family, we can trust God because he is a gracious provider for his people. A fourth truth, God is holy. Take your copy of God's word and turn to Exodus 19. Look with me at verses 16 to 22. Exodus 19, verses 16 to 22. God is holy. On the third day, when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud blast from a trumpet so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Then Moses brought the people out of camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the sound of the trumpets grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. Then the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain, and he went up. The Lord directed Moses, go down and warn the people not to break through to see the Lord. Otherwise, many of them will die. Even the priests who come near the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out in anger against them. We sang the song, holy, holy, holy this morning. And what you have when you look at chapters 19 to chapters 24 is one picture of another of the holiness of our God. In particular, as God descends upon Mount Sinai in all of his burning radiance and demonstrates that he is the holy God. And listen, that his people should reverence him, should reverence him as the holy God. What was God's desire for the people of Israel? Well, it was that they would be a kingdom of priests, that they would be a holy nation. And so he brought Israel, who were not holy, the people of Israel were not holy, and he brought them into a covenant relationship with himself so that they would be holy, set apart to live before him in a special way, in a holy way, as they have a covenant relationship with himself. In chapters 19 and 20, God prepares his people and then he gives them his law. He actually speaks it to them audibly. In 21 to 23, chapters 21 to 23, the, the Lord gives them a detailed list of laws that show them how they are to interact with one another in a holy manner. And then in chapter 24, through a ceremony, God enters into a covenant relationship with Israel, and they are sprinkled with the blood of the covenant. And notice when you see the covenant in the Bible, there's always blood associated with that because it points us ahead to Jesus. As a result of that ceremony, Israel now belongs to Yahweh. And in all of this, we see that our God is a holy God who desires that his people would be a holy people. So Christ fellowship, this is important. 
a life of holiness is the appropriate response to the grace of God in our lives. Uh, We see this so clearly in the life of the people of Israel. Did they earn their relationship with God? No, they were idolaters in Egypt. They were involved in all of the same sins. They were steeped in immorality when God redeemed them. But having redeemed them, what does he call them to be? A holy people, a kingdom of priests, and then he gives them a holy law. God intended for his people to respond to his grace in their lives by living holy lives in response to that grace. And that's how it is with us as well. None of us are saved, were saved, because we were holy. We were saved when we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were just like the people of Israel. We were likewise in bondage to our own lust. And yet God in his mercy redeemed us and met us. But now having redeemed us, having brought us into a relationship with him through Jesus Christ, God's desire for us as his people is that we would live a holy life. And what does that mean? It means that we would become like Jesus. That's what God's after. Brother or sister, if you belong to Jesus, he wants you to forsake everything and pursue him. He doesn't want any other gods before you. He doesn't want anything else that will take you away from a close walk with him. He wants your heart. He wants you to speak the way that Jesus spoke. And he wants you to act the way Jesus acted. He wants your thinking to be like Christ's thinking. And that seems overwhelming if you know your heart. But now consider that God in his kindness has given us resources that the people of Israel, for the most part, did not have. Most of the people of Israel did not have the Holy Spirit empowering them to live in a way that was pleasing to him. And so what did they do? They continued on in complaining and immorality and idolatry. But if you belong to Jesus, God lives inside of you. That means you have absolutely everything you need to live distinct from the rest of the world. That means you lack nothing. God has given you his word as a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. God has given you his spirit to empower you and to change you. And the spirit of God is committed to doing that good work in you so that the good work that has been begun, it will be completed unto the day of Christ Jesus. That's the promise. So we have this, we have this uh, command. We have this principle of life that we're to pursue, a Christ-likeness. And then we have hope. Because he's given us the Holy Spirit who can empower us to do that. Praise God. I love how J.C. Ryle encourages us to pursue holiness. He says, strive to live a holy life. Walk worthy of the church to which you belong. Live like citizens of heaven. Let your light shine before men so that the world may profit by your conduct. Let them know who you are and whom you serve. Be epistles of Christ, known and read of all men written in such clear letters that none can say of you, I know not whether this man be a member of Christ or not. He that knows nothing of real practical holiness is no member of the church on the rock. Brothers and sisters, we've been called to a holy life because we serve a holy God and he can help us do that. A final point this morning, God is glorious. God is glorious see this as you look at chapters 25 to 40. Exodus chapter 40 verses 34 to 35 says this, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it 
and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now, again, in the final 16 chapters of the book of Exodus, uh, the, the, primary, the primary subject matter is the building of the tabernacle. Where that in the first uh, six or so chapters, or chapters 25 to 31, God gives Moses and the people particular instructions on how to build every aspect of the tabernacle, which will be the tent of meeting where God would dwell amidst his people. And then in Exodus 32 to 34, of course, you have the people rebelling against God, uh, doing what is a tendency of all of us. They sought to worship the Lord according to their own thinking in their own way. And they rebelled against God and committed idolatry. But notice God mercifully spares them. And then finally, in chapters 35 to chapters 40, uh, you see the people actually obey God. And they do precisely what the Lord had commanded them to do. They did everything according to what the Lord had commanded Moses. And they built the tabernacle along with all of its furniture. And then at the very end, God's glory descends into the tabernacle. In all of this, we see the glory of God on display. The glory of God is seen in the beauty of the tabernacle and in the furniture that was part of it. As God directs his people to worship him, he does so in a way that speaks of his glory. Moses was to build all of that according to the heavenly pattern that he saw while he was on Mount Sinai. God's glory is seen in a special way when Moses comes to the Lord and he asks the Lord to show him his glory. Show me your glory. And, and God says, no one can see my face and live, but I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a rock and I'm going to pass by and you're going to be able to see kind of, kind of the after side of me, the back side of me. And God passes before Moses and Moses is allowed to see the kind of the, the shape, the image of God in some way. But then as God is passing by, he not only reveals his glory visibly, but he does it audibly and he speaks forth his name. So listen to what the glory of God sounds like again from Exodus 34. The Lord came down in a mountain and stood with him there and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. What is God like? He's glorious. God's glory is seen powerfully, as we just read, as Moses and the people finish the tabernacle, and that this glorious God condescends to dwell in the midst of this sinful people. And the glory fills the tent, and it's so glorious that Moses is not able even to enter. And of course, God's glory is seen all the way throughout Exodus. It's not just at the end. It's all the way through. His glory, the glory of his compassion for his people, the glory of his victory over Pharaoh, the glory of his provision for his people through manna and through water, the glory of the holy law that's given at Sinai, the glory of the covenant that was made. All of that flows into the last 16 chapters. And so you see from beginning to end, Exodus is a book about God that reveals the glory of God. And do you notice how specific it all is? What is God like? He's not vague. But the weight of God's glory, it does raise a dilemma for us. God is glorious. God is holy, and we're not. So how can a sinful people like us dwell in the presence of God and not be consumed? 
How's that possible? The answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. The Bible contains bad news. It tells us that God is a glorious creator who made us to know us and love us, have a relationship with us. He wanted us to glorify him, to make much of him and all that we say and do. That's what we were created for. But our first parents rebelled against God. They decided it would be better to think what they wanted to think and do what they wanted to do and make their own laws and their own ways. And so they did that. We send in them. And because we come from them, we've all inherited that same attitude of autonomy, of self-authority, of putting myself at the middle of my life, of doing what I want to do. We teach our children from their very earliest moments that they are to live the exact same way, that they're to pursue their own happiness, their own identity, their own dreams, their own law. They are to be a law unto themselves. And friends, that is what sin is. It is ultimately cosmic rebellion against God, and it's a rebellion that is based in a an unbelievable pride for people who are so easily killed. And we stand before God who is holy and we stand before God and by nature condemned. That's the bad news. That none of us can do anything that would ever make up for all the ways we've sinned against God. That if we were to stand before God on our own, we would feel the weight of his wrath against our sins forever and ever and ever. And that is the bad news that the Bible clearly teaches. Praise God. There's good news. The good news is that this glorious God, he displays his glory not only through his wrath, but also through his mercy and through his compassion and through his love. And he sent the son, Jesus Christ, eternal son of God, became a man. And Jesus came into this world and Jesus lived a perfect life. He lived the kind of life we should have lived, but we failed to live. And his mission was not to serve himself, but his mission was to serve others. And the greatest act of service was this, that he was willing to lay down his life on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners like us. And on the cross, he bore in himself the wrath of God against the sins of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. He died, but then he rose from the dead. And now this offer is made. If you will turn from your sin, and if you will turn away from a life of trying to glorify yourself and instead live as you were designed to live, trust Christ and live for him, oh, you will be forgiven for your sins. The gospel is a free gift that's given. It's given to all who believe in Christ, all who accept what Christ has done. And our, our, our pleading with you this morning would be that you would trust in Christ this morning. That you would turn from living for yourself and you'd put your hope in Jesus this morning. And if you do that, you will receive his salvation because our God is a gracious God. Jesus is the greater Moses. Moses really is a, a type of Christ. Moses' deliverance, acting as the deliverer of the people of Israel, bringing them out of slavery, it points us to Jesus who delivers us from our sins. And really, one of the things that I'm so excited about as we think about, and this is Christ's fellowship for you this year, as we think about kind of studying this book together, is I want you to understand at the very beginning that Christ is everywhere in the book of Exodus. He's seen everywhere. So that he is the greater Moses who delivers his people out of slavery. Well, Christ delivers us out of slavery to sin. And Jesus is our Passover lamb. The Passover lamb, his blood is shed and spread on the door. Why? So that the avenging angel will pass over. Christ's blood was shed for us so that God's wrath would pass over us and not land on us. Jesus is the bread of heaven. 
Moses gave the people manna in the wilderness, but Christ gives us himself and he teaches us to feed on him by faith. Jesus is the rock who gives us the water of life. The rock was struck in the wilderness and water poured forth. Christ was struck on the cross and now eternal life is available to us through the Holy Spirit. Moses gave the law at Sinai, but only Jesus perfectly kept the law and Jesus is the true tabernacle. He's the one who dwelt among us and we saw his glory full of grace and truth. And through Christ, because of Christ, now the day is coming when God will dwell in the midst of his people forever and ever and ever. Friends, Jesus is everywhere in Exodus. And as we read through and study this book, we're going to see glimpses of him on every page. And praise God for that. Well, let's conclude. What is God like? What is God like? There are two ways to get at the answer to that question. Like Sheila Larson, we can just talk about our own opinions. We can share our own ideas of what we would like God to be like. Or we can humble ourselves and we can listen to the revelation God has given of himself in his word. And in Exodus, we see so much truth about what God is like. We see that God is personal and he's a sovereign redeemer. We see that God is a gracious provider. We see that God is holy and we see that God is glorious. My prayer as we study this book together is that God will just teach us so many more truths about himself so that we'll know him better and love him more. And may God do that good work in us. Let's pray.